0: God for this morning? You're here. You got up, got out of bed, got dressed. You're looking pretty good. Most of you, anyway. <laughs> um, but what are you asking God for this morning? You, you came here. So, what are you looking for? So, I want to give you a chance just to communicate to, to God. You can just do it alone. You can do it out loud. Just communicate to God what it is that you're looking for this morning. You might say, God, I want to hear your word. God, I want to know you. God, I want to, uh, I want to grow. Um, maybe, maybe you just want to be honest and say, God, I don't, I don't really know why I'm here. Just felt like I needed to be at this place. All right, so I want to give you a moment and I'm going to be quiet, and you can, just, you can just talk to God, and then I'll pray before the teaching. Hear from God. Pray God this Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, I'm looking for life on your Hmm. So, Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of our pursuit. You are worthy of our affections. And, Jesus, as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And the secret behind that is we would never draw near to you if you didn't first draw near to us. So God, thank you. Thank you for bringing us here this morning. And I pray, Jesus, as we look to you, as we look to you, we would know you. As we look to you, we would delight in you. As we look to you, we would see your glory, and God, that would change us. So be glorified here, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. It has been such a really cool week. We had our uh, Ash Wednesday service, uh, which was a beautiful time of of repentance and being before God. Then we had the College of Prayer on Friday, uh, and then yesterday, and it's just been a wonderful week of of using this space to to pursue God uh, and to get to know what the Father's like. So I don't know about you, but you might remember some childhood perceptions that now when you look back on them might seem a bit ridiculous, might seem a bit silly. I remember going back to uh, the house that we used to live in when I was like elementary school age, and I was convinced out back we had like this massive forest. And I remember seeing like a a few scrub trees and some briars and like, what was that? I mean, I thought I would get lost in those things, and uh, now it just felt like it was just a couple of couple of scraggy little trees. Um, I remember coming to the realization that L M N O was actually not one letter, but it was the letters L M N and O. They were all separate letters. That was a that was a big realization for me. I think I was in middle school at that point in time. <laughs> I remember being confused. As I was you know growing in elementary school, and I found out I had some older siblings, and they would have um, you know friends and you know there would be talks of boyfriends and girlfriends, and I would find out that there was one boy that had kissed one girl, and then they broke up, and I thought, "Wow, you can't do that I mean after you kiss a girl that's like commitment for life I was also pretty sure she would be pregnant after you kissed but so like, you have these childhood perceptions that you, you grow out of, and you can look back and you can see how maybe silly or how immature those perceptions were, um, but, but have you ever thought of it the other way, right? You can look back and see immaturity, but can you look into to the future and see maturity, can you look down the road and see okay what 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 does what does the more mature version of me look like what does what does growing up look like for me at this stage of my life right what what will it look like for me to be to be to be more like Jesus what would it look like to for me to have vision as a dad as as a husband as a pastor what would it, what would that look like what would more mature versions of me be like. And I really think this is important for us to do at whatever stage of life we're in is to be on this journey towards growing. I mean, I love that. I love when 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 my grandmother gets the opportunity to come to church now at her age, she's got her pen out and she's writing things down. Why? Because she wants to grow. She wants to learn. She wants to she wants to mature. And I know my wife and I when we started to have conversations about vision for our children. Like what, what kind of, what, what do we want our children to be like at 18, 19, 20, 21 years old? What, 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 what kind of people do we want them to be? And as we started to get that sort of vision, it gave us clarity on well, what does it look like for us to parent? Because we're moving towards something. I love doing this as a coach. I love to identify the talent in, in a young player that needs to be refined, right? And and, and I love the opportunity to, to give them permission to grow as a player. Right To say, hey, there's, you have this ability, there's some obstacles that you need to overcome for you to be the kind of player that you can be, and then to give them vision and to help them succeed in being able to do that. Now, when you start at a really young age, like if you're coaching soccer for you know, four or five-year-olds, sometimes that is, hey, I have vision for you to actually walk on the field and not cry and sit on your mom's lap the whole time, or... Uh, you know, for my daughter, I have vision for you to actually touch the soccer ball when you're on the field at some point. So it's not quite as uh, uh, rewarding at the earlier ages, but when you get into like middle school and high school and you can talk about, um, you know, the, you, you see kids that are, that, that, that they're playing much smaller than their abilities because they're walking in fear and they need, they need some confidence. They need a coach that'll come alongside and, and unlock that for them. I remember telling one, one kid, listen, my because he would, he would play so tentative, and he was afraid that he might do the wrong thing, and I said, listen, my goal for you is to make a mistake in this game. I want you to play so hard that you actually foul someone. I want you to play so hard that you make a bad decision because you're just working so hard at it. After that, I had the best game of his life. Right? Because he was walking in fear of, oh, i got to do it just right. So to, to, to have vision for someone and then to, to help them grow into that vision. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but God has vision for your life. He has, he's looked down the road and he said, this is, this is what I've designed them for. I have vision for, for Bob Jackson and Bob Jackson's future. Right? I, I, I have vision for, for Brian's future. I got some things in mind for Levi. Right, I have vision for his life. Right? God does that for us. Right, God does that for you. He has vision for your life. He has something that he's leading you towards. And I want to give you an idea of what it is. This isn't in our text this morning, but I couldn't help myself. This is out of 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next for this comes from the lord who is spirit our transformation is coming from seeing beholding the glory of god and being changed into that very image now let me be clear as God changes you into his image, that doesn't mean we all look exactly the same. You being conformed into the image and likeness of God looks uniquely like you're designed to look. You're not going to look more like me. And as much as you want to look more like Pastor Diego, it's not going to happen. God is forming you into his image, which is uniquely revealed through your Form your character so you beholding the glory of the lord are becoming like him the infinite god revealing himself in many many different ways through his people that's god's vision for your life is to gaze on him and to become like him growing from one degree of glory to the next A.W. Tozer says the spiritual kingdom lies all about us, enclosing us, embracing us, all together within the reach of our inner selves, waiting for us to recognize it. God himself is here waiting our response. He's waiting for our response to his presence. So what God is wanting to do is to change us is to change us from one degree of glory to the next by introducing himself to us over and over and over again. And A.W. Tozer is saying, that spiritual kingdom, it's all around us, right? Waiting for us to, to, to awaken to what God is revealing about himself. God has created and placed us in an environment where he orchestrates the circumstances of our lives so that we could behold him and become like him. Because God has a vision for your life. This is what God does to make himself known among his people. I heard Jim Rudd say, um, I heard Jim Rudd say this, God manifests presence has always been this distinguishing mark of God's people. God's manifest presence has always been the distinguishing mark of the people of God. Now, you might be saying, Greg, who is Jim Rudd? Well, I'll tell you who Jim Rudd is. Jim Rudd is the speaker from the College of Prayer weekend that was Friday and yesterday. He was outstanding and did be- God did beautiful things among us. If you missed, that's a bummer because it was fantastic. Don't miss the next one. That's just his name. I, that was just the, the title for, for Jim, but... But yeah, Jim was the speaker this weekend, and it was excellent to have Jim among us. I just wanted to do a little commercial there for the College of Prayer. But what Jim said is God's manifest presence has always been the distinguishing mark of the people of God from the beginning of time, right? This has always been the distinguishing mark of the people of God. Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day, they met with God. Right, God manifests himself to them, right? He made himself available to their spiritual senses. And and think about that, right? God is always with us all the time, yet in the cool of the day, he would show up in a unique way for Adam and Eve to hang out with him, to talk with him. Or as God made a covenant with, with Abraham, he showed himself in, in like this, this torch and smoking pot. Like there was a, there was a unique, uh, and the word, by the way, manifests just as demonstration. So God demonstrates himself among his people. So with the burning bush, with Moses, a pillar of fire leading God's people in the wilderness, the glory of God on the mountain as he brought to Moses the Ten Commandments or his, his visible presence in the temple or the tabernacle, and then his, his fiery presence in the temple. Or as we turn the pages of the New Testament, the tongues of fire that rested on God's people as a sign of his presence dwelling among his people, the unique quality of the people of God is not how good we look. It's not how clever we are. It's not even our specific um, forms of worship or the songs that we sing or the liturgy that we follow. The unique thing about the people of God is that God shows up among them. That's what makes us unique among all other peoples is that God is among us. That's the unique distinctive of God's people is that God is with us. So God's vision for your life is little by little to put you in a place where he is on display in your life. Where little by little, he's getting, he's getting you to, to trust him, to know him, to love him, and then to make himself known through you, little by little, from one degree of glory to the next. That's, what, that's God's vision for you. Now, you might be thinking, Greg, I thought this was a sermon on Habakkuk. Well, it is. Because God had the same vision for the prophet Habakkuk's life. That that he wanted to take the prophet to new places of encountering God and new places of God being on display in the prophet's life. And so through the first two chapters of the book, we have seen this dialogue happening, this struggle happening. And what I want you to take note of very clearly is the transformation that we're going to see in Habakkuk's life came in the context of Habakkuk being in prayer with God. Chapters 1 and 2 are all dialogue. There's no action, right? There's no action, but there is significant change that happens. One of my favorite movies is 12 Angry Men. If you haven't seen that, there's an old version and a new version. Both are worth watching. The whole movie takes place in, um, oh, where do they call that, where uh, like jurors are sequestered into a jury room, right? It, it all takes place in that room. Like, wow, what a boring movie. But it is incredibly powerful to see the transformation that happens just in the dialogue that takes place in that jury room. Habakkuk chapters one and two, it's all conversation between God and Habakkuk. And we see tremendous change happening in the prophet's life. And so my point for us this morning is that as the prophet goes, so do we. And I think that there are some things that God is wanting to show the prophet, teach the prophet, that have the prophet behold and become like, that I believe God wants us to behold about him and to also become as well. So that's what we need to hear. So in order for us to understand chapter three, which is where we start, we have about a month left in Habakkuk. Um, so as we, as we move into chapter three, which is the final chapter uh, of the book, uh, let's, let's remember what's going on. Let's remember the conversation. Mark Driscoll has described, he, he preached through this book, and he described the book like a call-in uh, radio program. You know, have you ever heard of, you know, ever seen a radio program or listened to a radio program where people from all over the country, they call in and they ask some questions. You know, maybe you tune into the, Kevin, do you listen to the Dave Ramsey radio program? Thought you might. Yeah. So people from all over call in to Dave Ramsey and they ask Dave questions about uh, their financial situation, their financial predicament, right? So they have, you know, so we're going to go with uh, Dave from Millville. You're up on the air. But this time, the call-in is with God. So you're on the air with God. What questions do you have? That's what's happening with Habakkuk. Habakkuk is getting the opportunity to call in, and he's on the air with God. And God says, Habakkuk, what's your question? So the creator of the universe has taken the call, has engaged the conversation, and the whole book has been this conversation with God and Habakkuk up to this point. So... Habakkuk's first response to God is he's frustrated. He complains, "God, I'm disappointed with the way things are going. God, I, I I'm not sure if you're really paying attention, but um, you're you're a holy God, and there's a bunch of unholy leaders here in Judah, and they seem to be doing really well, and you're doing nothing about it. Right? That's a that's the first question um, that Habakkuk poses." Um, to God, God seems to be nothing. Uh, God's doing nothing about it. He said, "Justice has been aborted." Right? So there's this kind of hint of accusation, but there's this question, and then God responds, and He says, "Habakkuk, don't worry. I got this covered. I'm not ignoring it. I'm actually raising up a group of people called the Chaldeans. They're going to come in, and they will exercise my judgment uh, on the wickedness that exists in Judah." And Habakkuk says, I don't really like that, God. I'm not a big fan of the Chaldeans. They're actually more wicked than the leaders in Judah. This seems um, inappropriate for you to do. Uh, You're a holy God. How could you stand in the presence of such unholy people? Um, So that's Habakkuk's uh, burning question. And he's stuck on this theme that God's not fair, Right, that's that's essentially his concern with his first question, and now it's coming up again. God, this is this is unfair. I'm I'm expecting justice, and now the justice you're bringing seems like unfair justice. So Habakkuk is uh, frustrated, or seemingly frustrated with God. Um, but I, I, like, I want you to know if that's your posture. If you think, I can kind of relate to Habakkuk, maybe not with the Chaldeans, but when I look at the circumstances of my life, I feel a sense of injustice pressing in on the world that I live in, pressing in on my house, pressing in on my life circumstances. And what I want you to know and what we've learned through Habakkuk chapter one and Habakkuk chapter two is if that's what you feel, God is willing to take your call, right? Like you can bring that into conversation with God. Don't run from that. Don't push it down. Don't ignore it. Follow the leadership of the prophet and bring it into conversation with the father. God, this, this feels unjust. This doesn't, this doesn't seem Right? It feels like things are, things are happening that, that dishonor your, your fame and your glory. And, and I, don't, I don't understand these things. Bring that into conversation with the Father. Because what we see in Habakkuk's example is as he does that, he is going to be changed from one degree of glory to the next. So get on the phone, make the call, get God on the line, and let him know, hey, this is, this is where I'm at. This is my point of frustration, So then God responds to Habakkuk in chapter two and tells him that Habakkuk, you need to walk by faith Uh, is God's response to him. Uh, And it's not really an answer to his question, but it is a profound response to his need. Um, And he lets him know that his justice will be satisfied, uh, that the Chaldeans are sowing seeds of destruction. Um, And uh, even though the Chaldeans are going to be God's tool to bring about his judgment on his people, they too will receive the just judgment that they deserve. That as they are going through and conquering lands, they are sowing seeds of destruction, so they are going to reap the consequences, the harvest of that destruction. It's going to come back on them. They live by the sword, they're going to die by the sword. And so God lets Habakkuk know that, but then at the end, of uh, verse 20, God gives this profound response to end the conversation with Habakkuk. He says this, he says, let all the, but the Lord is holy in his temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. But the Lord is holy in his temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, I don't mean this in a negative way. It's gonna maybe sound negative at first, but have you ever seen someone assert their competence, right, where, where, where like there was, there was some confusion, there was some struggle, and then someone who was competent took charge and took the lead, like maybe in a time of crisis where people didn't know what to do and they were scrambling, and then somebody who had a plan Somebody probably who had been trained stood up and said, hey, this is what we need to do, right? If if there's a fire, hey, this this is how we have to respond. This is where you need to go, you need to go, and you need to go. And they asserted their competence, and their competence was exactly what everyone needed. I think that's what God's doing here for Habakkuk. He's asserting his competence, He's saying the Lord is holy in his temple. The Lord is unique. There's no one like him. He is in charge of all things. Everyone else can, shh. everyone else can be silent before him. God is in charge of all things. Someone shared a story with me uh, this, this week. It came after Pastor Chris's sermon last week you remember uh, his sermon last week touched on dealing with idols and King Josiah uh, tearing down idols in, in Judah. And he also talked about how um, the different idols that existed and people would cling to certain things because they thought those objects had power. So after church, some, uh, some people from a church went out to lunch And at lunch, somebody saw them and saw that one of them was in pain. One of them was struggling. And they walked over and said, I'm a faith healer. And if you just take this particular object, go home and lay this object on your knee for a half hour, you will be healed. And uh, my friend said, "Uh, no, (laughs) that's not going to happen. And my friend had their child with them. Right? So she, in her mind, is thinking, I can't allow this to stand. Right? I can't allow this, this false teaching, these lies, to be spoken here as if that's a legitimate option. And said, I'm sorry, we don't, I don't believe that. I believe that we are, we are healed by, by Jesus in his timing. And I do by faith, I pray, but, but it's up to my King Jesus. It's not based on my works, not based on my activity, not based on my actions, not based on some object that I think brings healing. It's only by the will and work of God, right? She had to, right? And as the story is told, like she, she launched into to that conversation because she had to demonstrate Right? Her her competence. She had to, she had to demonstrate that, that what is being shared here is, is false. And you might think, Greg, that, that does not sound very nice. That doesn't sound very Christian. Well, I'm not talking about somebody that abused power. I'm talking about somebody that stood up to opposition. And they opposed someone, they stood against a lie. They oppose them in order to stand for what is true. And I'll be honest with you, yeah, it's not particularly nice. But friends, nice is not our highest value. We We don't live for nice. Jesus didn't die for a church that would be nice. Jesus died for a church that would be holy, a church that would be set apart, a church that would be active in advancing the kingdom of God, where the manifest presence would be demonstrated among his people. Sometimes that doesn't feel or sound nice. The other point is I'd like to make on that is we have an enemy that is the father of lies, is described as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This is not necessarily the time for niceties. Right, this isn't peacetime, this is wartime. And so at times we need to stand in opposition. Of course we do it lovingly, of course we do it respectfully, but at times we have to be forceful in our communication of the truth. And that's a tough one in our culture because being nice and making sure everyone feels comfortable and all of their experiences are validated. Sometimes speaking truth into that environment, truth itself can be painful. So, I actually don't think God sounds particularly nice in his response to Habakkuk. He's righteous, it's true, it's loving. But to say, the Lord is in his temple, let all the earth keep silent before him when Habakkuk has been chirping out his questions, sounds a little confrontational which is exactly what is needed in those moments of crisis, right? If the house is on fire, it's not time to make sure I'm saying this with a nice tone of voice. And I listen, I don't want to offend your senses. Sometimes, hey, there's a fire. We got to move. That's the most loving thing I could communicate, right? So, so there's times when what we need to do is speak truth. So... This is is the end of Habakkuk's phone call with God. With this, the conversation ends. Good night, Habakkuk. And everything is then silent before God. And so this is how Pastor Chris led us last week. If you remember, we were silent before God. We were contemplating the holiness of God. Remember, we had scriptures in front of us, and we were just quiet before God, thinking about how holy he is. And that was so right for us to do. and the reason that's so right for us to do is God had something he needs to communicate to Habakkuk and needs to communicate to us, and that is this, that God's not like us. Did you know that? That God's not, God's not like you and I. He's not, he's not limited. He doesn't have uh, emotional swings. He doesn't at times believe what's, uh, true and at other times believe what's a lie. He doesn't. He doesn't at times uh, explode in anger. God's God's not like us. God's love, God's affection, is always for what is of greatest value. Friends, God's not God's not like you and I. He's not limited. He's not dependent. Jeremiah 17:12 says, "A glorious throne set on high from the beginning." That's the place of God's dwelling, right? That, that's where God exists. So he's telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk, before time, I was. Before all that existed, all that exists that you see, I was there. We can't, um, it's hard for us to get our minds around the greatness and grandeur of God, where God is holy in his temple, And God is saying, Habakkuk, I'm not not like you. I am far greater than you. That doesn't mean that God can't communicate himself. That doesn't mean he doesn't draw close in love. But we have to be careful to think that God is not just like us, that he's in charge. He is holy in his temple. So Habakkuk now has to sit in silence on that truth. He has to sit in that one. Right, Habakkuk, I'm holy in my temple. Let, 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 let all the earth be silent before me. And so Habakkuk is silent. He does well. And then after some time passes, we turn to chapter 3, and Habakkuk decides to speak again. But this time, we have a new Habakkuk. We have a more mature Habakkuk. Something has shifted. Habakkuk has received the message from God. He has beholded or he has seen something of God and has been transformed. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. This is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigonoth. I pronounce that perfectly. I can say that because none of you have any idea how to pronounce that word either. But 3 1 marks a change in the book. Habakkuk now prays for the first time. You don't see the word prayer come up in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Now the prophet is praying, he's thinking before he speaks. The cry of chapter 1 and chapter 2 was a very honest, very raw, very real cry of, God, this isn't fair. God, this isn't fair. But now, this is a prayer. Habakkuk has thought about this one, and he's going to communicate very systematically. He's putting things in order. But what I want you to know, first of all, is God receives both types of prayers, This prayer, and I'm gonna show you in a minute why, this prayer is very orderly, very organized. Habakkuk has thought about it. He was silent for a while. Now he's responding to God. The other prayers of chapter one and chapter two, they weren't even called prayers. They were just like, oh God, this is not fair. God, this isn't right what you're doing. It was just the the raw, honest response of the prophet. God listens to both, right? Prayer is about being in communication being present and being in communication with God. Prayer doesn't always need to be measured and thoughtful. It should be sometimes, but prayers can be raw. We do, as a family, one of my favorite things we do is a Valentine's Day party, and we all share Valentine's with each other. We create, well, I I shouldn't say we, I've never created one, but somebody in our family creates these little Valentine's boxes, and then we put letters for everybody in the family. We include the animal's. Everybody gets a little Valentine. And sometimes the Valentines are silly. Sometimes they're ridiculous. Sometimes they're, you know, a little stupid, I imagine. Mine can come across that way at times. Um, But sometimes they are deeply profound, right, carefully thought out. And that is an important part of our communication together, right? Like, this isn't the only time we express love for each other, But sometimes we express love for each other in acts of service. Sometimes we express love in just, you know, treating somebody with joy and respect. But other times, like on Valentine's Day, we take the time to communicate carefully and thoughtfully our love for one another. That's what Habakkuk is doing now. He's being thoughtful. And it's the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk uh, according to Shigonoth. What does that mean? Well, we don't really know exactly what that means. It kind of sounds like a dance, like you do the hustle, you do the shiganoff. Yes, Habakkuk is getting shiggy with it. Sorry, I just <laughs> couldn't resist. Couldn't resist that. Um, but we, we don't know exactly what the word means, but we do know that it is some sort of musical notation. Right? It refers to something. So this prayer that Habakkuk is, is praying is designed to be part of their liturgy. It's designed to be part of how they would pray corporately. So he's giving thought to them, which this is common through the Psalms. Psalm 16, Psalm 56, Psalm 60 all say it is a mikdom of David or Psalm 45 is a maskil. These are different types of Psalms or types of, of songs sometimes it gives cue of hey this should be done with stringed instruments this particular prayer right or we're going to see in this in this psalm that habakkuk is writing in chapter 3 um,